How many of you were outside at some point yesterday in this beautiful Saturday in Huntington Beach? Most, but not all. Uh, Hillary and I were outside. We took baby Jack and we went down to the beach. And Hillary put me through a workout. Now, Hillary, if I'm leading the workout, if we go to 24-hour fitness or something like that, and I'm like, all right, I got, the, I got this game plan, we're going to do this, she will poop out after like 10 minutes. She's like, I've had enough. I don't want to do anymore. I get but if she's leading the workout, she's like drill sergeant and just get down. You're not getting low enough. You know, like hold your legs up. I mean, just, just crazy tough all of a sudden. So we went out yesterday morning and we go down to the pier and then we went south and we were pushing the stroller and she had me running and pushing the stroller. It's the first time ever in my life I have ran and pushed a stroller. It's harder than it looks. And so I'm running, and then she'll say, stop, we stop here, and we get down, we're doing push-ups, and then we're not just doing push-ups, we're doing burpees, and we're jumping, and we're doing like all these things in rapid-fire succession, and I am torched, I am exhausted. There's like four different stations, and one of them she's doing, you know, has me doing pull-ups, and then she says, now go, run to the water. I'm like, I can't run to the water. And so I, I, she just, she worked me, and I was so tired. I was walking back like, down the, you know, boardwalk or whatever it is, back toward the pier, and I was just barely moving. I was so exhausted. And so I'm like, I got to go to the pool. And she's like, are you mad at me? I'm not mad at you. I just need to be quiet because my body hurts so badly. And, <laughs> and so we went to the pool at our condo complex. We went out there, and we sat down. We sat on, like, the second step of the pool water. It was perfect, you know, crisp but not cold. And we just sat there, and, I, you know, I just had to, like, be in the water for a second. Again, not really very social, uh, but not mad. Just, just kind of, you know, resting <laughs> my body. And, and so at the pool, there's this scene that plays out. There's another family at the pool. And on the other side of the pool is a couple, and they're sitting on these lawn chairs. And they have a kid in the water. And it looks like they had backed up their SUV and, like, dumped all their play toys from their pool at home. <laughs> into the water because they're just kind of floating around. And little kid made sure that I knew that these were his play toys. Like, these, are my, these are my toys. You can play with them, but you have to ask first, you know? And so he's, he grabs a gun, and he's like shooting it at me, and I'm like kind of looking up at his parents. I'm not mad. I'm just really sore, and so I'm not really going to interact with you, uh, little kid. But fortunately for me, there was a 20-something who was also at the pool. And he kind of jumped in and was swimming. And so little kid sees 20-something and says, "Uh, you want to play with me? You want to race? You know? And so they start to, like, interact a little bit in the pool. And then the kid jumps out. He realizes, this guy's big. I'm small. If I'm going to race him, I can't be swimming. Like, this isn't fair. So he jumps out, and he thinks he's going to run along the pool while he swims. And immediately, mom on the other side says, don't run! Don't do it. You got to get back in the water. And she barks out some other orders too. And, and then I notice that the 20-something guy, kind of he's, he's seeing the dynamic that's happening here. Little kid wants to play. Mom's yelling from over there. She obviously doesn't want to get in the water. And he says, okay, well, how about this? And so he pulls the little kid over to him. He says, let's try this. I wonder if you can beat me walking on the outside of the pool. And so he, they do it that way. And he's like... I, I, I can. I, I totally can. And so he's, you know, scurrying, and, and the guy lets him win, and they jump in, and it's all fun and everything. And I thought, that's a, that's, a, that's a good little picture there. You have mom and dad barking orders. You have a kid who just wants to play, and then you have 20-something in the water that says, okay, okay, how about this? I want you to obey and honor your mom and dad, and I want you to play by the rules here because you'll get hurt if you run and then slip and stuff. That's not a good thing. So, so it's a good thing to play by the rules. 
and let's have some fun. You know? I thought of that because we are in this series that we've called Christian, which is deconstructing this word because the word doesn't really mean anything anymore. You've got people on both sides of every political agenda, every war, all kinds of things that say that they're Christians and maybe even read the same Bible, but they believe and act in very different ways. So that word is kind of, it's lost its significance. But we've been talking about how what it means to be a disciple is very different. That a disciple, Jesus invites us in to follow him. And he makes it pretty clear what a disciple, what a follower should do and what that should look like and how we should live. And last week we talked about grace and truth and how Jesus came as the embodiment of grace and truth. And so I saw this little picture of that in the pool yesterday of, yes, there's truth, there's a reality, there's, there's a standard, there's a rule that, 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 that's good not to run on the pool deck. And let's have some fun. Like, let's enjoy ourselves in this process too. So we're going to keep talking about that today, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. But first, I want to remind you, John 1.14 said this. I said, if you want to live as Jesus lived, you're going to have to love as Jesus loved. And here's the verse. It says, the word became flesh, talking about Jesus, put on skin. God put on skin and came to this earth, and he made his dwelling among us. He was with us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice that it's not like the the balance of grace and truth. It's the total embodiment of both. It goes on. Out of his fullness, we have received all grace in place of grace and grace and grace. For out of the law, the, the law was given through Moses, so we know the standard, that's established, that came through Moses. They put it on the Ten Commandments, you know, the tablets thing, and we, we know the right and wrongs. But grace and truth came, embodied, showed up, was born, is visible through Jesus Christ. So you know, you know what grace and truth are. You know what they are. Truth says, here's the standard. Grace says, but you don't have to be perfect, you know? Truth says, you blew it. Grace says, you'll get it next time. And all of us grew up and have tendencies in one direction or another. You do. You might have grown up going to a strict kind of legalistic church, and so you, you err on the side of truth. Like, this is what makes sense. I expect, people, I expect this kind of a standard. I work really hard. I'm disciplined. And so, you know, act right. Fall in line. Some of, the, some of you are more on the grace side of things. And you think, well, this is, you know, it, no, nobody's perfect. That's why God died. There's forgiveness. Yes. But either side, if you, if you settle for, if you don't want, if you choose, I just can't wrestle in this tension. I'm just going to commit. And you settle for one or the other. Or if a church settles for teaching it and embodying one or the other, you miss something. You miss who Jesus is, and what his love really is. You miss it. So we have to live in this tension of both. That's where we have to find ourselves. Because if we are going to be the body of Christ, we have to embody both grace and truth. Can't be one or the other. It is both. And we talked about that last week in terms of an example that Jesus set. You can listen to that message if you weren't here. He, he showed us in different ways. There's different stories where he embodied that and he showed us what it looked like. Today, we're talking about how he taught. 
about grace and truth. So we're going to Luke chapter 15, but I want to give you a little bit of context because Jesus was a master teacher, clearly a far better teacher than me. And you would just be, have your mind blown in his presence. And so this guy, he's, he's taking such, a, such an awkward topic, such a difficult thing that's so like theologically and politically energized in his time. And his audience is all over the map in terms of how they view him and how they view this teaching. And so if he were going to go after this issue of grace and truth head on, he would have lost them. And so he does what only a master teacher does. He tells them a story, a parable. A parable is something that is not true to, to teach you something that is true. And so he launches into it here in verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners we're all gathering around to hear Jesus. Let's stop there for a second because you have to understand what's going on here. Tax collectors and sinners. They were the outsiders in the day. These are, the tax collectors were like the worst of the worst. So they, they had even like another category beyond sinner for tax collector. These are the people that are just, they are cheating their friends and family. They are taking everything that they can. They are working on behalf of the enemy, Rome, and they are coming in and they're taking even more taxes than they needed to. So they were despised by people in the community. It was like there's the bad people and then there's the tax collectors. So the people that are, that are designated as sinners, those are just people like, like maybe you and me that would say, yeah, I've blown it. I, I, I see religious people over here and they seem to do things really right and they wash their hands and, and, you know, and eat their vegetables and everything. And they seem to have like this connection with God and I recognize that I probably don't. That whether it's my occupation or the way I've lived in the past, I probably don't have that same kind of connection to Jesus. And so I, I would say, yes, I'm, I'm a sinner. So you have the worst in society in terms of behavior. And they are gathering around to hear Jesus. That happened everywhere he went 2,000 years ago. Imagine, imagine if it happened today. Because that's not what you associate with church on Sunday, Right? mostly people that know right and wrong and they show up to be reminded and to be encouraged and to celebrate God's faithfulness in their life and other things like that. But what if, what if we, like Jesus, were so strangely attractive that people just kind of flocked? If Jesus was a pastor in Huntington Beach, there would be people using every home hangover remedy that they could figure out to be here on time on Monday mornings, on Sunday mornings at 9 or 11 right? And they would be filling these first eight rows. And you would be, you'd have to show up before 11 to get a seat, you know, because people from Main Street, you'd be like, I saw that guy. He wasn't looking too good, you know, Friday night. And here he is, because they just wanted to be around Jesus, That was the scene. And so there they are. And he goes on in verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They muttered, this Jesus guy, he hangs out with all these crazy people from Main Street. These are the worst of the worst. These these are the people that haven't even slept in two days. They just came straight here from their partying. You can smell it on them. And he hangs out with them? He hangs out with them? In other words, what they're saying is, 
He condones their behavior? That's the real question. That's the real agenda. I am disciplined. I, I, I do right. I do all these things. I'm, I'm a good person. And he's hanging out with them. He must condone their behavior. But the reality is he does, he does not. He did not condone their behavior. He embodied grace and truth in such a way that he was magnetic. And so on this particular day, he has Pharisees, teachers of the law, sinners, and even worse, tax collectors that are all gathered to hear him teach. And this is what he says. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now you and I don't hang out with sheep on a regular basis, I don't think. But I have a friend who was recently with sheep. I don't remember where she was. It was somewhere where there are sheep and shepherds. And, and you know, that's not everywhere. And so she was, she was there, though, and she came up on some sheep. And she came up on a sheep who was on its side. A sheep on its side. And the sheep was not moving. So she approached the sheep very carefully because she's heard these things are crazy. And so she went up to it, still not moving. But its eyes were open, and it just laid there and blinked. And didn't move. And so she went up to it and she poked it. Didn't move. So she had her friend come over and they kind of poked and kicked at it. Still didn't move, the sheep. And they thought, well, it's clearly alive. Do you think it just needs to be stood up? Yeah, but it should be able to kind of stand up on its own, right? Yeah, well, maybe it's paralyzed. Well, maybe, let's just try to pick it up. So they bent down, because these things are kind of heavy, and they together lifted this sheep to its feet. And boom, it took off. You know why? Because sheep are stupid. It doesn't understand what to do in new circumstances. It's just like I've fallen over and I literally don't even know how to try to get up. I just lay here dumb, blinking my eyes like a, like a Morris code to come help me because I don't know what else to do. Interesting that Jesus uses a story about sheep to kind of get us thinking about God rescuing us. And he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He says, or suppose a woman has lost 10 silver coins. So he says, ladies, what if, what if one of you lost one of your 10 valuable silver coins? Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep under the house Sweep the house carefully until she finds it. And husbands are like, yes. I mean, when she loses that thing, it might not be a coin. We don't understand. Like, the, the, this was a valuable thing. This would be like a family heirloom that you cannot replace. This would be an, a very valuable. So whether it's grandmothers or great-grandmothers or mom's ring or necklace or something like that, and you lose it, you'll do everything you can to find that thing, won't you? I, my wife would be like, vacuum cleaner, get that bag, un, you know, we're bagless now, right? Vacuums. But we get in there and see if it's in the vacuum cleaner or sweep under everything or in between the couches. You will find that valuable thing. And that's what Jesus is telling them. And so the people that are listening, you got to imagine, you got, you, got the, you got the sinners and then the even worse sinner tax collectors and you got the religious people and teachers of the law and they're all here and they've never agreed about anything, these two groups. These people feel judged by these people, and these people are, are resentful of these people for how they live. And now Jesus has them both here in his presence, and they're all nodding. Yep, I will go find that sheep. 
Yep, I would find that coin. And they don't even realize, they're kind of looking around like, yeah, I mean, we're all in agreement here, but they're, they're bought in, they're leaning in, and so he goes forward. He says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Now, for many of you, you have heard this story before, and I invite you, maybe this morning you will hear it in a new way, because I think that this story is not appropriately told most places, and it wasn't when I was growing up. A man has two sons. Jesus already understood birth order before they talked about birth order. So he's saying there's an older son and there's a younger son. How many of you are firstborns? Yes, that's like almost half probably. I am too. I'm the oldest of three kids. What are firstborns known for? Being bossy? Maybe being bossy. You're a younger son? Responsible. Wise. Maybe wise. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're like the responsible ones, right? I mean, my, my parents left me, and I was supposed to babysit the, my little brothers. That was kind of the deal. That's what we did. And I felt like I had a little leadership talk with my dad when I was like five years old. And he goes, you know, Caleb, your brothers look up to you. This is like your number one leadership responsibility until you get married. You're, you set an example. I'm like, okay. Yeah. And so I, I behaved. Older sons are behaviors. Younger sons tend to be misbehaviors. And so Jesus is telling them a story, and they're relating because they're all older or younger, and so they're picturing in their mind, yeah, this guy has two sons. And then he goes on to say to this crowd, this diverse crowd, he says, the younger son, it turns out, comes to the father, and he says, Dad, I am sick and tired of this life and this family and you. I want my inheritance now, which means I wish that you were dead. And when he says that, this crowd of the religious and the irreligious, the self-righteous and the unrighteous, this crowd, all of them are, are angry. Like, that's just not right. It doesn't matter where you come from. That's just not right. To say to your dad, I wish that you were dead. Give me my share of the inheritance now. Dang. And so everyone's upset. And then he goes on. He says, so the younger son makes that request, and the dad grants him his request. And so he liquidates his assets, and he says, here, here's your half. And the younger son says, thank you very much. And he hangs around for a little while, but then he realizes that this town's too small for him, and so he goes to a distant country, it says, somewhere where no one knows who he is, and he can live however he wants. So he goes, And it plays out. And he does everything that he's always wondered about. He satisfies or tries to satisfy every appetite. He has every experience that he's wondered about. And it says that he lives lavishly and spends all the money. What took his dad a lifetime to acquire, he blows in months. And then... He comes to his senses and realizes, I'm in bad shape. I've ran out of money. All my friends left. No one cares. I'm in this foreign place. I don't know anybody. And I'm actually having to be a, this guy's slave and, and feed his pigs, which is like the dirtiest job you could have in that day, especially for a Jewish kid. They didn't touch pigs. And he finds himself here with pigs, and his boss won't even let him eat the food that he's giving to the pigs. We got to keep these pigs fed. 
And so he thinks to himself, this is ridiculous. I could be, I'm a slave for this guy who won't even let me eat out of the pig trough. I can go home and be a slave for my dad. He he treats his servants better than this guy. And so he thinks, okay, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go back. And he's working through the implications of that in his mind and he's working on his speech and how's this going to look? And it says, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, I wonder if that means that the father was paying attention. While he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with... So if he's a long ways off and the father sees him, I wonder if he'd been looking for him. And then it says that he's, he's filled... Jesus is telling the story. He says his father looking, sees, is filled with... Now remember the audience. You have the religious and the irreligious, the self-righteous and the unrighteous. You have, you have the sinners and the people who think that they're good with God. And all of them, in unison, in their minds, are thinking, the Father is filled with anger. And it's justified. It's a righteous, it's a righteous kind of anger. It's maybe even fury. The way that you would humiliate me, your father, like this, take the inheritance and just go, you know, squander it completely. And now you have the nerve to come crawling back. And they're ready. I mean, they're, they're excited for this moment. First, they thought, okay, this story is going exactly the way that it should. And if someone goes and does this and they spend all the money in a way like that, they should lose everything and hang out with pigs. That's how it should go. And then it gets even better. He comes back. Now he's about to get the righteous backhand from his dad. This is, this is going to be what we all want to see. Like the drama is, is, is mounting here. When the father saw him from a long ways off, he was filled with compassion. Compassion for him. And it says he ran to his son, which Jewish guys did not run. I mean, imagine like lifting the toga. You've never seen pastier legs. Then, <laughs> then this, and he just starts running to the son, given what he's done. Now, the audience at this point is confused, and, and now they're angry. They're like, this doesn't, we thought that you were setting this story up, Jesus, to make the Father God. But no, there's no way that this could, that this could be. It says he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. See, he's starting into the speech that he had prepared. He'd run through it in his head. He had a long way to walk, so he had that thing down. He ran, he, he'd run it through. He was going for it. He was like, here's the, here's the, here's the deal. I'm no longer worthy. I'm a sinner. I, you know, I, I, just make me a slave. Like this, this will be fine. But the father said to his servants, quick. Now, we'll go on in a second, but just, just understand, quick. When he says quick, servants, quick, I would say, servants, hold on a second. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna let this play out a little bit. We're going to make sure that he's sincere. Because maybe he just ran out of money. Maybe he acquired some kind of disease in this foreign country. Maybe he's just like rock bottom, but this isn't really rock bottom. Maybe there's even like a more rock. Maybe he doesn't really mean it. 
So, I mean, let's just let this play out a little bit. I'm not ready to, like, like, all right. But he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. In other words, saying, make him my son again. I want him to look like my son. I want him to smell like my son. I want everyone to know that he is reinstated as my son. Quick, before anything else can happen, before anyone can ask any questions, this is a done deal. He is my son. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Now this fattened calf, this fattened calf had been, this, this thing was being like coddled and kept for a special occasion, like Super Bowl Sunday or, or, or like Father's Day, right? Or some, some kind of special, they had been feeding this guy Doritos and Twinkies to try to like get him ripe and ready for the big event. And the father says, nope, Get that, get that calf now. We're going to kill it. We're going to eat. We're going to celebrate that my son has come home. And the religious and the irreligious in the crowd are baffled. They don't get what Jesus is trying to do here. They're thinking, what? That's ridiculous. That's obscene. Now, that's where the story stops for many of us because we think, yeah, we, we know that story, the prodigal son, right? But Jesus said he has two sons. The older son, the behavior, the one who did stuff right. He's, imagine him coming back from work. He'd been working hard all day, per usual. And he's coming back and he sees the drama playing out in the distance. He sees the streamers and balloons and things. He hears the noise from the musicians, the band that's playing. He's like, what, Charlie, what, what's going on over here, man? Oh, you haven't heard? And Charlie takes a step back. <laughs> um, your little brother's back. You can just imagine the older brother's face. Drop and then get red. And he says, your, your, your dad's killed the fattened calf. The f- he killed the... Oh. And he, you know, he's throwing a party. He's throwing a party for him over, over there. He, wants, he actually wants you to come and celebrate. And it says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Let me ask you this. You know any angry Christians? You grow up with any angry nuns? <laughs> you see any angry preachers on TV and you're like, man, why do you hate your life, dude? What? What? what You've been around anybody that you're like, I, that person, like, they seem to do good stuff. I know that they go to church, but I don't really want to hang around them. They're just so negative and angry all the time. Why? What's, what's the deal with that? Why are you, Christian, so against everything? Why, why, are, you, why are you angry all the time? I'll tell you why. So many Christians and, and some of us in here are angry people. Because we're afraid that someone else is going to get the blessing that we think that we deserve. 
I've been good. I've done all the right. I've been out here working this entire time. I can't even imagine how much money he blew on doing exactly what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it and going nuts like that. And so he was angry. He was angry. So here we have this scene. We have the, the boy who's gone off and he's come back and the father celebrates and the older son is getting a glimpse of this and he starts to be infuriated. And then his father hears about this and so it says his father went out and pleaded with him, pleaded with the older son. Notice that the father went out to his older son too. But he answered his father, the elder son. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. You didn't even fatten up a goat, let alone this calf, and you're throwing a party for that kid? I have been doing right. I stayed in this marriage. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't cuss. I stayed a virgin this amount of time or, you know. I am good. I do the right things. And you're going to celebrate that? You're going to celebrate him? It's unfair, it would seem. And the audience, the religious and the irreligious, are like, yeah, you know what? He's got a point. I mean, that stinks. That, I, this, is, this is a weird story <laughs> that, that is playing out here in front of us. But do you know what it is that makes us angry? It's, it's self-righteousness. It is that feeling, that sense that somehow we're entitled to the party. And if you, if you have too much bad behavior, that you're not. And we think that we're somehow better than people that do certain things. And we get resentful if they get blessed. But what about me? How come I lost my job? That person cheats. How come, how come this happened in my marriage? They're, they're dysfunctional. And so it's that self-righteousness that burns in us and it makes us angry and it makes us resent God's generous love. The brother continues to argue with the dad. He goes, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you throw him the party and the fattened calf. He's like, you know, Dad, I, I didn't even want to bring this up and don't tell Mom, but he was with prostitutes, you know? Prostitutes. You know why I think he said that? His, the younger brother spent money on lots of things. Why did the older brother bring up prostitutes? Probably because he secretly wished that he had that experience. <laughs> Isn't that what self-righteous people do? They get mad at the people that are having the experiences secretly in their head, playing out those same things in their mind. And so when it comes home, it's like, but he did that. And I've been disciplined. I didn't do that. Secretly wished I did, but I didn't (laughs) do that. But he did. How could you throw a party for this kid? And I relate. I relate. Because growing up, I was, that, I was that golden boy. I did the right stuff. I didn't do the bad things. I didn't commit the big sins as if there's some like sin scale and like one through three are acceptable, but beyond that, right? You don't, don't do these sins. These are, 
And so I thought that I was, I had self-righteousness. I thought that I was better than people who were making those big sins. And when I was in college, I had a college pastor. And the college pastor was our pastor for four years. And then my senior year, he went through a divorce. And I literally thought in my mind, I have lost respect for that man. How could he just keep being pastor and let his marriage go down the drain? And then a couple years later, I get married for the first time. And I am secretly angry at my wife because I was, I didn't have sex before I got married technically. And so that's good. And then she lived more like the younger kid and did some crazy stuff. And, but I think we're supposed to get married. So we get married and then secretly in the back of my mind the whole time, I'm angry. Did I deserve more? Like, how could you have lived that way? Why would you have? Until the relationship blows up and we get divorced. And now I'm just like this college pastor that I judged. And it was more my fault that we got divorced than hers. So it was through that painful reality that I learned I am just like everybody else. And that I have this tendency to become self-righteous and think that I deserve things and wish, why would someone else be getting blessed when they have behaved badly? My son, the father says to his older son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. You are always with me. The inheritance is not the possessions and the stuff. It's it's my presence. This is life. You're living it, and you're missing it, but you're living it. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he is alive again. He's lo- he was lost and now he's found. Here's the thing. Performers miss the point. Performers that think they always have to have their act together and they're just trying to earn and do more stuff and maybe, maybe if I'm better and better then I get more stuff and I get more stuff. They, we, those people like me have missed the point that the inheritance is the proximity, the presence with our God. And then we secretly wonder, like, maybe, what's it like out there? Like, there's that distant country thing that's kind of sexy and enticing, and I kind of I secretly wish that, that, was, that there was something there for me. But the reality is there's nothing there. Sin has a gotcha. Sin has a sting. It, it, it gives you the shiny little, hey, look at me. This is nice. This will be fun. Come join me out here. And then with this hand, it's like, yeah. And it strangles your life away. That, without there, the distant country, it's, it's kind of fun for a little while until it kills you. Sin has a sting, but repentance restores. And here's the thing. God's love goes beyond behavior. God could not love you anymore. And there is nothing that you can do to cause him to love you any less. The same is true of anybody else that you come in contact with. God cannot love them anymore. And there's nothing that they can do to cause him to love them any less. Now, some of you are 
more in the younger son camp. Maybe you are just kind of coming back and exploring. You, you have felt like you maybe you know you've wandered from God, and so you are, you're saying, I, you know, this hasn't gone the way I hoped it would. I've lived life on my own terms, and I see that sin has a sting. I see that there are negative consequences, and I don't want that. I actually want to be in God's presence. My invitation to you is simple. Come home. Nobody's mad at you. God's not mad at you. God doesn't get mad at lost things. He doesn't get mad at the sheep. He doesn't get mad at the coin. You don't get mad at your cell phone when you lose it. You might get mad at your wife. It's somehow her fault, I'm sure, but you don't, you don't get mad at the phone. God doesn't get mad at lost things, and neither should you. Come home if that's you. Presence. The inheritance is presence. And then lastly, we will be a people that celebrate homecomings. We will be a people that many feel welcomed to come back home. It doesn't matter how they have lived. It doesn't matter what they have done. It doesn't matter how crazy, how disrespectful, how far gone. We will celebrate when God's children come home because others have celebrated us and God celebrates us. And there is no sin scale. There is no you're too far away. There is no, you know, you're, you can't be a part of this. There, there's nothing like that. We are people who celebrate the lavish, ridiculous love and grace of our God. You get to experience that crazy grace and we, you and I, will extend it to this community around us because we live in a world that's desperate for it and they think that religious people are just out to get them, out to judge them, and they're wrong. That's not, maybe they're right, maybe that is religion, but that's not this Jesus. And you and I will continue to wrestle in this tension of grace and truth embodied by Jesus. And as the body of Christ, we will be that in this world. God, I just pray that you would allow us to know your crazy, generous, compassionate love for us. That while we were still sinners in a long way off, you saw us. You ran to us, you threw your arms around us, and you made us your child. And God, give us the hearts to love others that same generous way. In Jesus' name.